Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hi, this is Paul Edwards. I want to start by making a comment on the title of the program. Um, I've received several phone calls and several emails um, that that uh, are uncertain about what the title meant. And so I want to spend just one or two minutes talking about where it came from. Obviously, all blind lives matter. Obviously, all lives matter. Obviously, all black lives matter. I don't think there's any question about that for any of us. Uh, if if we're caring human beings, uh, every life is precious. But when we add the word enough, I think what we're beginning to explore is are there things about the particular group that we're talking about um, that need to be compared um, in terms of quality of life? Enough here for me means are the lives that we're talking about, do they matter enough to all of us and to themselves? It's not, it's not intended to be uh, a put down. We will eventually on Tuesday topics cover other groups, blind women, blind Hispanics, and a range of other groups, because I think they all as individual groups have specific issues that deserve exploration. But tonight we're focusing on one particular group, and that is a group uh, who happen to be black and who happen to be blind. I am overjoyed to welcome my two guests, Peggy Garrett, uh, who is chair of the Multicultural Affairs Committee, and Cheryl Cummings, who is a member of that committee, and uh, perhaps more famous for her cooking prowess, um, but nevertheless a person I've had the pleasure of knowing for many years as I have Peggy, and, and Cheryl was kind enough to to, to do a couple of my earlier Tuesday topics with me. And I know I had fun doing it. So the group that we're talking about, Black Blind People, um, it seems to me are, uh, are in a position that is different um, from white blind people. Peggy, would you agree with that? And can you maybe expand on it a little more? Uh, yes. First of all, Paul, thank you so much for inviting me to Tuesday Topics this evening. Um, I am very honored to to be a part of your show. And yes, I would agree with you that it, it there are stigmas that are attached to being black, to being blind. And then if you happen to be a woman, you know, you, you have the three stigmas attached. Um, it is different. I've lived with it. All of my life, of course, uh, I've I've been in situations where things really caught me off guard because they were totally unexpected. Um, and so, what you kind of find that every day is a challenge. It's challenges. There are challenges that we face that 
of whites do not have to deal with. Uh, and just to give you a little quick background, I grew up in the 60s. I grew up in the days of separate water fountains, one for colored, one for white. Same thing with the bathrooms. Uh, I grew up being visually impaired, but not having any of the technology or anything that was available at that time. So it was it was difficult. But my mother said, you will do. And when mama said, you will do, I did. And so I was able to persevere and get through. I graduated 10th in a class of 288, which um, was pretty good. Uh, wasn't where I wanted to be, but I wasn't 10th from the bottom either. So that made a big difference. So, yes, there are challenges that come with being uh, being black. Uh, I didn't go through some of the challenges that people did. I never was uh, set upon by dogs or had fire hoses turned on me when we were out uh, uh, on the streets or anything. But it, it was it was a very, it, it is and it continues to be challenging. There are situations where I walk in and I'm the only black person there. Um, in some situations, I'm welcomed. In others, I am shunned. So it, it, there, there are challenges that we face that white people would probably never have to deal with. So in the rehab system, Cheryl, do you think that, that folks who are black and folks who are blind are, are at a disadvantage as compared to white blind folks? Um, so let me, like Peggy, say thank you so much for inviting me to be part of tonight's conversation. Um, and uh, I should say that I, I have worked for a rehab agency. Um, and in addition to that, you know, I've done lots of reading. And so the answer is truly yes. Um, some of the challenges that you face are that I think African-Americans face in the rehab system is um, they're, they're, you know, they're in the world. Everybody's in the world that we're living in. And so there are perceptions and beliefs, I think, from counselors, which can get in the way. Um, and from the other side, as a, as a client, there are also sort of perceptions of what's doable and what's not doable that can also get in the way. So I think it's it's both sides. Um, and I know that there, are, there, there have been instances where what was, you know, maybe permissible from one client is perceived as something negative from another client. And instead of giving somebody a chance, um, somebody, you know, people get sort of closed out of the system. But <clears throat> aside from that, there is data um, Mathematica, one of the larger research institutes in the United States, um, they've, they've put out papers showing that um, African-Americans, that their outcomes when they go through the rehabilitation system is, is oftentimes um, less positive than for whites who go through the rehabilitation system. Um, I, I looked at a lot of statistics and, and, and also serve on my state rehab council and, and looked at national statistics because I wanted to see if what was true in Florida was true elsewhere. And 
in 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 this in this three in 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 this three year needs assessment that every state is required to publish. Um, African Americans are are demonstrably poorer performers. They they they're more likely to be closed non positively. They're more likely not to get jobs, um, and and they're and they are also more likely to get jobs that pay less. So, I mean, the statistics are certainly there. So the question is, ought ACB or somebody to be doing something about this? And if so, what might we do? And, and I'll let whichever one of you wants to try tackling that easy question. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. Um, when I, I've never actually worked for vocational rehabilitation. However, when I was in Georgia, I was the director of a center that provided services to people who are blind or visually impaired. We offered our services to vocational rehabilitation and everything, of course, was uh, for the, well, the majority of the people we got were people who had recently lost some or all of all of their vision and were trying to get back in the workforce, either by going directly to work or by getting additional training. And one of the things that I witness frequently is that uh, African-Americans, no matter their age, were given fewer hours of training. They were judged more harshly. And the way we tried to work around that was that we gave them extra we gave them extra time. We gave them we gave them things that vocational rehabilitation did not pay for uh, because we were in a position to do that. And I think sometimes that if people will in, in vocational rehabilitation specifically, what look more at the person's intent. They are really trying. Maybe it's taking them a little longer, but they really want to learn. They really want to go back to work. They want to complete their education. And look at it from that standpoint, rather than their ethnicity, I think that would make a huge difference. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes that agencies have to go that extra mile to, to make a difference as well. Cheryl, any thoughts? Yeah, so I, I absolutely agree with what Peggy has said. I mean, and I think if we're talking about uh, organizations such as ACB, I mean, one of the things... Well, there's several things, but one way we can start, I think, is to really, truly become knowledgeable about those outcomes that, 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 that are happening and to, you know, in, a, in, in some ways start advocating and asking questions of agencies like, why is it that this type of data is put out year after year and we all, you know, we read it and we say, okay, <laughs> and then we move on. Um, and, and maybe if we engage the rehab agencies in a conversation about, you know, what can we do that's different than what, what has been done? Because the most insane thing is to say, what can we do? And then the answer is we do what we've been doing. And, and, and then we all sit around and wring our hands like, oh, my gosh, the outcomes haven't changed. So, you know, the question is, they're not going to change if you keep doing what you've been doing. Something, you have to change your input 
to, to get your, you know, change the output. I, I want to raise one more question about kind of the group in general. Um, and, and that is, I, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to ask you guys whether you think that, that the problem starts with the with the rehab system, or does it start sooner? Um, are are folks who are black uh, in an, in in an untenable position um, in school as well? And does that influence the way that they're they are likely to react to rehab? It it could be because I mean I. Um, for the last few years, I've been running an after-school program for kids who are blind and low vision, and it's here in Boston, which is a very diverse, um, you know, the, like combination of kids. And I think what I see is that for certain kids, um, all, you know, types of assistance and services are made available. And for other kids, sort of depending on how they're assessed, then the decisions about, like, when do we start teaching you Braille or when do we start introducing the use of a cane, all that starts a lot later than, than you would think is appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. And so kids have the challenge and, and families have a challenge also because I mean, so often, you know, my kids who are legally blind, like that's, that's just not the label they want to accept. And, mm -hmm. and the issue is, you know, how do you get the kids to accept that? How do, cause how do you get the families to accept that? And then how do you make sure that the families and the kids and everybody understands like how the system works? Because so many, you know, for families, I think, when kids are going through school, they're caught up in the school system. Like, oh, we've got to get the IEP. You know, that's got to be done. And there's no sort of thinking long-term. Um, and and uh, I, I think that that's something that, that sort of impacts access to services while in school and then access to services once somebody gets out of school. Mm -hmm. Peggy? I agree that it starts earlier. Uh, I know in a lot of states that IEPs are not done, but I also know that vision teachers are at a premium across this country. So a lot of times students are not getting their needs met at an early age to prepare them. By the time they get to high school, they're already quite a, way, you know, quite a bit behind. Uh, the other part of that, though, is in a lot of cases, parents are not prepared because if they haven't had any any prior experience or anyone in their lives who can talk to them and tell them about the needs, they oftentimes are not prepared to uh, to get out there and and just advocate for their children's needs. So I think that the the lack of of, of availability of, of their children's needs being met uh, at an early age really makes a, a big difference in, in uh, you know, they're, they're, by the time, like I said, they get to high school level. And, and especially I, in inner, I'm sorry, I'll, go I'll say especially go in, in, in inner cities, I think that is 
Um, I mean, the the quality of the of of the schools for all children, not just for children who have a visual impairment, uh, is way below the level of meeting their needs. They get secondhand books if they get books. Well, of course, now they everything is on the computer, but in a lot of situations, uh, they're not getting computers. So they're, they're, they're behind from the very beginning, and then it becomes a catch-up-if-you-can kind of, kind of situation for them. Cheryl? Yeah, I was going to say, and that in, impacts, like, expectations, because a lot of time, if you have, like, if you can envision your child doing something when he or she grows up, that gives you a different sort of view of what needs to happen while your child is still growing up. Um, and I, the, as you were speaking, Peggy, I thought about one of the kids who participated in my program. And um, one of the things we were able to do was to help get him uh, like a summer internship at our Museum of Fine Arts. And his, first of all, the student was so excited to have that opportunity. I mean, he just... You know, he brought his badge, his employee badge, to share to us. Uh, he explained when we went to the Museum of Fine Arts that, you know, as the, as the public, we go through this door, but as an employee, he went through that door. Um, but, and, but I think in addition to that, the parents talked to me and they said, thank you so much because this has shown us, like, what the possibilities are for our son. And I was... I mean, pleased, but surprised because these parents were involved and, and, you know, they were participating in our program. And I thought that they had some ideas about, like, what he could do as he grows up and what's possible. But I think un until folks actually have, like, a natural experience or, as you said, there's a, like, ongoing discussion about the future. Um, it's hard to, to think about options for the future. So we've focused so far on, on the society as a whole. But let's focus for a few minutes before we, before we start um, taking questions on ACB. Um, how is... ACB doing in terms of recruiting, retaining, and promoting folks who are black? Peggy? Well, as, as you was stated when we talked, uh, Paul, that was really surprising to me that ACB has no way of knowing how many black, how many African-American members are actually in the organization. Um, one of the things that we do in our chapter and at our state, at ACB Texas level, uh, as a part of our application, we ask people how they identify uh, as far as their ethnicity. Uh, we get age uh, or age range. We don't, don't necessarily ask their, you know, the exact age, but we want to know their age range. We want to know their ethnicity. That helps in terms of writing grants. But it also helps the organization to know where you are and, and, and as far as uh, doing more outreach in specific areas. Uh, one of the other things, Paul, that, that had, has been really in the forefront of my mind as far as recruiting, and that is reaching out through churches, 
reaching out through medical facilities. There is a uh, just a huge growth of, of older people who are losing their sight. A lot of them are losing their sight due to diabetes and other health issues that are, are really more common among the African-American population. And I, I'm not sure if all of the uh, chapters and affiliates or even at the national level, if they thought about reaching out to those entities to increase the African-American population or membership. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cheryl, anything you'd like to add? Um, I think I'd probably add that, I mean, I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is that when you start uh, talking about recruitment, um, you know, you have to, you have to commit to doing the work because so often um, people are like, oh, well, we tried, you know, we sent a flyer and nobody responded. So we've moved on. Um, And, uh, you know, today people talk about relationship outreach and you don't build a relationship by sending one flyer. Um, So that's something I think we really need to, to sort of think through how as, you know, a state affiliates or chapters, how we can commit to doing that. And I, I totally agree with Peggy that we need to expand also our concepts or ideas around where do we send information to. Is there a role for, for, for the national organization in this effort or, do, or does it all depend on local chapters and state affiliates? Well, this is Cheryl. Um, I, I think there is. I mean, I, I really think, you know, if you think about ACB as an organization that is comprised of state and, um, you know, state affiliates and chapters and uh, national um, and, uh, you know, the board, um, I would think that uh, it doesn't have to be a mandate, but some sort of uh, policy commitment or direction that says from our leadership, the board, executive director, that as an organization, this is what we would like to do. Um, I think that information can come out and then um, the states and chapters and the other affiliates can use that as a guide, as a, as, as a, you know, our beacon to, okay, this is a, sort of vision that we have for the organization, and then this is something we can do. So I think it's, it's definitely a, a um, you know, maybe it's an up and down. So something from up coming down, and then as Peggy has, has mentioned, that the, the state chapters are certainly doing things that can affect the work that, that is being done nationally. Peggy, is there a role for national? Oh, definitely. I agree with what Cheryl said totally. Uh, in the past, MCAC has held uh, some of our annual programs uh, dealing with just that. And uh, the one that comes to mind is one that talked about leadership, reaching out, mentoring, and encouraging uh, minorities, African-Americans, all minorities to step up. But at the same time, uh, at the local level, the the chapter and the affiliate level, preparing 
minorities, preparing African-Americans to take on leadership roles, because it has to work both ways. If people are prepared and they're willing, but leadership is not encouraging, and when they look at leadership and they don't see anybody that looks like them or that they can totally relate to, uh, that's, that's a deterrent. So it has to work both ways. You know, you have to reach out and reach up and reach down and reach around and just be welcoming and encourage people to use their time and their talents because you'd be surprised the number of people that we have in this organization who are very capable, but their time, their talents are not being utilized because they're afraid of being rejected. So they don't reach out. They don't step up because they don't feel that they would be received very well. So it has to be both ways. There, there is a role, and I like Cheryl's idea of something coming from the leadership that could be used by the, the affiliates and the chapters to be more encouraging, um, to reach out and, and reach out to, minor, to more minorities. Help with hand-raising tonight comes from Randy Reed. Welcome, Randy. And um, How are you? I am well, and do we have... Do we have a hand raised? We have lots of folks. Um, so to start with, we have uh, Charles Crawford and... Very good. Charlie. First of all, Reverend Edwards, thank you for your sermon. You're and, welcome. Uh, I, agree with, I agree with totally of what you said. And I, um, I want to I wanna first of all say that Er, wait a minute. Shut up, stupid thing. Thank you. All right. Now, um, are you still there? Yes. Good. <laughs> I, um, I, I want to say that um, from my perspective, I, I grew up in both in the United States and in Puerto Rico. And there are two different cultures and two different ways of viewing race relations. And there are three words that occur to me. First is acknowledgement. Second is apology. And third is atonement. And how this relates to that is that in Puerto Rico, you have lots of black people, lots of white people, and a whole lot of people that are both. And on one level, especially from the old Spanish part, there is this discrimination that is white and black just as it is here. But for the most part, the society doesn't really care because everybody is part everything. And that's important to understand because it's not a matter of considering. It's just a matter of accepting that you are as you are and everybody else is and may the best person win. Now, when you get over to this country, and we have years of institutionalized slavery. We have this horrible example of what happened in, in Minnesota. We have Juneteenth, and on Juneteenth, we have the massacre that happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of black folks simply because some fool said that some white girl was raped by a black guy, which never happened. The fact of the matter is that we have a distorted understanding of race in this country. And as long as we have Eli Whitney 
honored as the guy who invented the cotton gin. And at the same time, we're talking about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben and uh, Little Black Sambo and all that. I mean, we're teaching people to be, to internalize their oppression and then to act it out. And that's what we have to stop. We have to stop. We have to atone for what we've done by really accepting each other and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And when we do that, we can grow. Thank you, sir. Um, Peggy or, or Cheryl, do you want to comment? Um, I suppose, yes, <laughs> there's, there's not much to say. Um, I know that um, among, because I, I, I'm, I'm actually an immigrant, uh, came to the United States when I was 10, uh, and I came from South America. Um, and um, so I know, like, within our different cultures, um, there's definitely, there's still issues among the groups. And that's something that I, uh, you know, I, I, I believe Charlie, when he talks about sort of his experience of Puerto Rico, um, but I'd say uh, as a person who is a black person, um, I've had a slightly different experience. Um, and, um, but, but I think that the sort of categories you, out, you know, Charlie outlined of truly acknowledging, atoning, apologizing, and I'd say then fixing what's, what's been done. Um, I think that's, that's really important. Excellent. Um, who else, Mr. Randy? We also have uh, Christine Hunsinger. You know, that old bugaboo of white privilege, there's so many people who don't believe we have it. But damn, we do. Um, there are things that I never had to worry about. And, um, and my family wasn't well off or anything like that, but we had the wherewithal that the generation ahead of me, all, you know, a certain number of them went to college and became school teachers and whatever. Uh, and, and I wouldn't be a school teacher for that reason. Cause I didn't want to hang out with my aunts. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, the whole thing of, of the inadequate school systems, um, the inadequate, inadequate education for black kids. You, you got to, when I went to the school for blind children, all the black kids sort of mysteriously disappeared after a certain number of years for different reasons. But I'm sure part of it was that nobody was as open and caring and, and, and friendly probably. And then they got in trouble for things that white kids probably never got in trouble for. Um, and as adults in the system, or just because you know that um, people's expectations are lower in certain cases, and I know I've done that. I see somebody come into my office and he sounds like sort of a slow kind of guy. And, um, and it's like, oh, that guy will never, never, never um, be able to assault, do this kind of work or whatever. And it's just because he's a bit tentative or whatever. And so people don't give that person the, the good chance that, that he deserves. But the interesting thing about the um, identification of blackness or ethnicity or whatever, we spent so many years being afraid to 
know the answer to that question as kids. You know, like um, you didn't want to ask a person, are you black? Are you white? It wouldn't have mattered to me. But it was something that I couldn't ask where somebody who had the visual ability to draw a conclusion could ask. Um, and I think that ACB probably has sort of shied away from that question. We could just put it in a demographic section everywhere, um, you know, just like they do in all kinds of surveys. Um, how, do you, how do you identify racially? How do you identify ethnically? How do you identify gender-wise, et cetera? That, that's just a set of demographic questions that are healthy to ask, as, as, um, as was pointed out, for grant purposes. And the other medical issue is let, let's start identifying those medical conditions that create, um, that create more visual impairment. And you go to the dialysis units and you go to the, because people with diabetes end up with on dialysis some of the time too. And you go to doctors who uh, treat those kinds of people and you say like, please let these people know about us. And then we will try to be open to you and inviting. And I certainly hope that more people will be. Excellent. Thanks, Chris. Randy? Yes. Next, you have Christelle C. So, uh, I want to talk about uh, overt white racism. Uh, first of all, it seems to me that the disability rights movement that I've been involved in for four decades is essentially a lily white movement uh, and has done virtually nothing to reach out to different uh, communities of people of color. Um, number one, number two, uh, it seems to me most human beings, when they see something that they don't know what's going on or they hear something, they don't know what's going on. Their mind creates a story. Uh, and because we, you know, just as a survival evolutionary thing, I think we need to create a story to figure out what, how to react. Now, I think white people create racist stories about black people. And some of that is overt. And some of it is, is not acknowledged. I mean, we don't always, we aren't always good witnesses of the stories that we're telling inside our brains. Um, so I remember the, there was the white cop that, of the white cop that went into what she thought was her apartment and there was a black gentleman there and she shot and killed him. Well, uh, you know, I'm sure she told herself a story that, Oh, a black guy broke into my apartment. So I, you know, I can shoot. Um, but <laughs> of course that wasn't, that wasn't the situation. So I think we need to train people to be aware of the stories that we tell ourselves in our own heads. And then I think we have to ask ourselves a question. If this person were white, would I react the same way? And I think that's certainly something we have to teach cops, but I think we have, we have to be aware of it as white people generally. And uh, that's my comment. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Can I, Go I ahead. just want to, I just want to sure. say something sort of um, the, I, I, you know, uh, in comment to what was just said about the disability rights movement. Um, I, I don't disagree that I think sort of in many instances, the national leadership and the ones who end up working for the foundations, et cetera, um, tend to be uh, folks who are white. 
but I just want to say that um, within all of our different communities, people who are Black and of other ethnicities with disabilities have been working very hard for their rights. So I, I don't want anybody to have a perception that we're sort of sitting and waiting for somebody to come and save us because our lives are challenging enough <laughs> that you can't, you can't like sit by and wait. So people, even though, you know, we're not necessarily acknowledged on the larger level, I mean, people, people are working and they're, they're participating um, and, and, you know, they're trying to make changes in their communities. Yep. Thanks. Now, the next person is unmuted, we assume. Uh, Ray Campbell here. Paul, can you hear me? Ray, yes. All right, good. Um, thank you. Um, as second vice president of ACB, one of the great honors that I have is to get to work with the Multicultural Affairs Committee and these two fine ladies. So uh, uh, this is uh, it's wonderful. Um, all of the discussion that's taken place in our country since the murder of George Floyd and of course, Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery uh, has really, uh, I, I know for me personally, as a white male in my mid-50s, has really made me kind of look at things and listen to things. And, and, um, um, and I'd add two words to what Charlie said earlier. I'd say we need to listen and we need to believe. Um, you know, it's easy to say, it's easy to throw up your defenses and say, well, that doesn't really happen or this doesn't really happen. You know, we really need to believe that things do happen. I guess I would just ask uh, you, Peggy and Cheryl, what are some ways that those of us who really want to help and want to help make the change and begin the change that needs to happen, which is not going to happen overnight, what are some ways and things that we can do uh, both as leaders of ACB, first of all, or second of all, but first of all, just as people who want to make a difference uh, in the world and try to make America a better place? Um, I'd be interested in your answer to that. Thanks, Ray. Peggy? Well, I think you, you touched on a very important part of it, Ray, when you said to listen. People sometimes have, as as Charlie said, closed minds, or you know, they they have uh, ideas that are preconceived, without really giving a person the chance to get to know them, to find out who they are. Mm -hmm. You get put into a category. You get put on. Uh, you get judged in a way that's really not fair. That would be like to say that every white person is alike. You all are as different as there are as many white folks as there are, but we as black people, we as African Americans, we don't get that same option. Right. We don't often get the opportunity to express ourselves, to have people listen to us, to see who we are. And of course, in the words of Martin Luther King, to be judged by the content of our character and not by the color of our skin. So I think that's number one. And, and of course, it's to keep an open mind 
to yeah. be willing to learn when you listen. It's one thing to listen, but if you're listening, but your mind is not open to accept that maybe you could change just a little bit, or maybe you could try to see it from a different angle. I think, I think that's a beginning. But I think the other part of that, too, as someone said earlier, and that is if you learn something new, you see that things aren't what you are, you thought they always were, but you keep allowing the system, you are part of, you're a part of the system, and you're not willing to make a difference. When you learn something, you're supposed to do something different with that knowledge. But if you learn that things aren't what you thought they were, but you don't make any attempt to make them better, case in point, to see that not all blacks are bad or ignorant or whatever you, you may think, but that people are people regardless of the color of their skin. Let's just get to know each other. Listen and be willing to accept that maybe we had a wrong concept. And I think that's a big changing point right there. Cheryl? So um, I would add read. Um, so I, I'm a big reader, and I think that there's so many books that have been written by African-Americans about African-Americans that I, I, I don't have, I was thinking, I was, I wanted to pull together some reading recommendations for tonight, but there's so many lists all over the place. And I did do sort of a barred check lots of books that are on BARD that talk about African-American history. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I mean, I think, you know, know the facts because we are not taught the full story when we're in school. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is um, among your friends and family, I, and I know this is sort of a hard thing to do many times, but to speak up. You know, if you hear somebody doing or saying something that is racist, um, I mean, you know the person, and, and I think you can figure out a way to approach the person to help them understand why what's being said is not acceptable. Because, you know, if, if, if when adults say things and there are kids in the room, and even if the other adults know, oh, he doesn't really mean it, the kids don't necessarily know that. And our, our silence, I think, is telling the kids that it's okay. That it's okay to be one way in public and be another way privately. And, and that shouldn't be the case. Excellent points. Mr. Randy. Yes. Uh, next up is Lindy X. Um, hi, Paul. I I was just thinking that, you know, we are a people of vision. That's what our book is called. That's what we kind of stand on. And that vision should include, you know, all racial backgrounds, all cultures. And <clears throat> I kind of feel like I, I think there's been times when we've been afraid to ask those questions or the people would feel like they were going to be judged on that. But I really believe that we probably do need to have the facts as far as what we are as an organization made up of. And, I, you know, most of the time I don't even know what color somebody is. Unless they have a really strong accent, I don't know at all. Now, I will tell you that 
you know, in the South, you aren't sure what color some folks are when they speak Southern. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't care. But I can also tell you, uh, just as, as a kind of a statement, I as a white person have been discriminated against by black people. So I hope that, the, that our other ethnicities understand that, you know, they need to consider our feelings too. And um, we're not, to, we're really not, not all of us are to blame for everything that happens to them. Thank you, Linda. Peggy or, or, or Cheryl, do you want to comment on that? Yes, I, I, I would like to say to Linda, no, by no means are we saying that that African Americans are the only people who get discriminated against, uh, because I'm very aware that that is totally not the case. The one thing that I will say, though, is that Multicultural Affairs Committee, our, our mission is to create a an, an environment of of cohesiveness and uh, inclusion for all cultures, for all races. We, we each year uh, during the course of the convention and during the course of our, uh, of the year, we hold various uh, focus calls that, that focus on different areas, topics, and, and they are inclusive. It's not just about any one race being discriminated against, although that's the topic for tonight. That's our focus for tonight. But I just wanted to put that out there that, uh, that's what we as a Multicultural Affairs Committee, that's what we do. We reach out to everyone. Excellent. Um, Cheryl, do you, do you want to add anything or should we go on? Oh, you should go on. I agree with Peggy. Excellent. Randy? Okay. Your next uh, person is a phone number ending in 9833. Hi, it's Alice. And Peggy, first of all, I just wanted to say I was listening um, when you were on Anthony's show the other day, and I just wanted to reach through the phone and hug you when you said, we are people first. And I think you're right. I think that's where it starts. It's not just about, you know, you know. I'm black, I'm blind, it's I'm a person and to look at me this way. But my, my question is, uh, there are a couple of them. One is kind of to Cheryl in the, that with VR services, I think part of the problem, maybe it's more of a statement than a question, but you kind of touched on it, but we seem to forget and maybe that would even help with, with the problem with minorities um, in the fact that they don't seem to think about people as individuals. And the whole point of VR is supposed to be, it's supposed to be an individualized plan. And I, I think we forget that a lot of times. And I think if they get down to the basic of that, that would help. Then my other thing is, and, and I asked this last week on the membership call, and I'm just, because I'm, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are, especially when we're talking about how do we develop and, and get get more minorities involved on the boards and at the national level in leadership positions. Do you think it would behoove us, and I know we have the multicultural committee, but, um, you know, like Diabetics in Action was a committee at one time, and then they went and formed an actual affiliate. And, and through that, you know, you're, you know, we all have that in common. So those are the things we work on. And, and that is kind of a way maybe to help build leadership. Do you think that's yay or nay? Or do you think we're better to, so that we do have inclusiveness not to go that route? 
So let me let Cheryl answer your first question and Peggy your second. Cheryl? Uh, yeah, so I I think you're right. I mean, and, and I, I, you know, I'm not a VR counselor. Uh, I, I have no VR background per se. I just worked in a in an agency. Um, and so these are just sort of my uh, observations, I should say. And I should, and I think, um, you know, I should recognize that uh, the, the counselors, they too are working in a system and they're working in a system that has like some requirements. So you've got to close a case X time and, you know, they have some certain pressures. Um, but I think you're right in saying that there has to, that there has to be a way to create sort of opportunities um, to recognize the individuality of each client, recognizing that, you know, not each client fits into uh, X program and that for some people you, you may need to do different things. And I think um, if the a VR system has that type of flexibility, there are probably uh, greater opportunities for um, folks who are black and others to to be more successful. Peggy? Uh, yes, and I, as Alice said, we do have the Multicultural Affairs Committee and Diabetics in Action, but I, I believe that we as an organization have to all be cognizant of reaching out to others, to embracing people, to step up, to take on leadership roles. Uh, but at the same time, seeing that the current leadership, all leaderships, whether you're a board member, whether you're an officer, a chair of a committee, a president of a special interest affiliate, we have to all be willing to outreach, to reach out, to pull in, to get to know people. We, we miss out a lot of times on the talent and people who could contribute much to this organization. We just simply overlook them. Not everybody is going to come to us. We have to get to know folks. And, and so I think that's the key. I think that's so, the key. So in 30 seconds, I, th I think what Alice was asking is, has Multicultural Affairs ever thought of becoming an affiliate? No, we have not. Uh, we've been asked, this is the second time in like three days I've been asked that question, but I have chaired this committee for a number of years, and to my knowledge, no, we, we have not ever given that consideration. Very good. Randy? Yes. Next up is Stephanie Watts. Good evening. I um, want to thank you guys for hosting this. Uh, I am brand new to... ACB, I want to give a shout out to my chapter, ACB Capital Chapter, Sacramento, California. Um, hopefully our president, Regina Brink, is on the line tonight um, because she has a lot of valuable things to say. And I want to also give her credit for why I joined. Um, I will identify myself. I am African-American female, what the demographic will call older adult. And um, I stress that because years ago, I considered joining ACB here in Sacramento and our local chapter, and I walked away um, because I didn't see people that looked like me. I didn't, 
I won't say I felt unwelcome. I, I just felt it was like a kind of, um, okay, yeah, you can join now. Not necessarily. We'll miss you if you don't. No, we won't. And, and the, the experience just left a taste of, well, all right, I'll, I'll just not join. Um, to fast forward to my question, um, or maybe more of a comment slash question, um, again, being new, um, forgive me if I'm treading on things that you guys have already cult, uh, covered as a multicultural affairs committee. I can see the issue as culture. Um, I heard a statement, maybe you've heard it as well, that <clears throat> culture eats policy for lunch. Um, won't take any credit for that statement. But if culture eats policy for lunch, then might you as ACB and especially this committee consider ways to change the culture? Um, because another incident I'll share quickly with you is I, since, since joining, um, I got on a call um, one evening and I listened in and I heard some rather hurtful things. I didn't identify myself as African-American or any of that, but the chatter was, was hurtful. And what I'm saying that to say is, you know, not to call out any one or group in particular, but to say, if you consider a policy and you implement a policy, but you don't change the cultural, the culture through looking at implicit bias and things that people hold. Um, someone said it earlier, you know, some of the individuals who are white feel we're blaming them and we're not. But that's a, that's a conversation that belongs under implicit bias and other topics that Peggy and Cheryl are probably way better versed on than I am. But again, just an observation that you might consider a long strategy to look at culture and changing the culture of this organization because one of the things that helps along the way in outreaching to all of us different folk is authenticity. And um, thank you so much and I'll mute. Very good. Peggy. Stephanie, you, you brought to mind a conversation that I had with a, a, a friend just a few days ago who shared with me that she is on Facebook. And in light of all of the things that have been going on with uh, the the George, after the George Floyd uh, murder, uh, that she was some of the things that were being said were just unbelievable. That they were actually coming from members of ACB around the country. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I have learned is that you have to change a person's heart, and only they, only that person, and the Lord can do that. Mm-hmm. There are people who have bias that they developed over the years and they're there. And that goes back to what I was saying a little earlier about talking to people, getting to know each person as an individual, uh, finding out who they are, what they're truly about, rather than making an assumption. Because a lot of times when people don't think that we, and I say we as African-Americans are listening, what they will say sometimes is very different 
than what they will say when we are in the room. And that's because that's who they are. And unfortunately, they're everywhere. And ACB is is no exception to that. The only thing we can do is be the best that we can be. uh, Try to let people uh, talk to people and hope that they will, will get to know us as an individual. And then as more than one individual, and as you get to know more and more people, regardless of what the situation is, uh, your minds can be changed. I, I'm I'm not so pessimistic that I would say that minds can't be changed, but it's it's uh, it's 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 difficult because, as was said earlier, when you have people in a room talking, you have children listening, and a lot of times adults think children aren't listening, but they're listening and they're internalizing what's being said. And as they get older, it becomes who they are because that's what they were taught. That's what they learned. So, you know, prayer and, and, and I know that, you know, we're not supposed to keep God out of it, but God's every, in everything I do and everything I say. So prayer and just getting out there, letting people see who we are and hoping that that will make a difference is basically all that we can do. Yes. Cheryl, your final thoughts in 30 seconds. Um, Peggy's correct prayer, but I think that we also need to um, incorporate trainings that, um, that, that have been done in other organizations, anti-bias, uh, implicit biases sort of things, diversity. I know diversity is like a four-letter word now, but I still believe that it's worthwhile doing that. And I think organizations that show that they are actually working for change, um, to change themselves and sort of who they are, I think that draws people in also. Peggy, 30 seconds. How can people get hold of Multicultural Affairs? You may call me at 281-438-9665 or email me at p r c Garrett, and that's G-A-R-R-E-T-T at sbcglobal.net. And I'd love to hear from you. Next week on Tuesday Topics, just before the convention, we're going to feature all things convention Janet Dickelman. And as we leave this evening, I'd like to suggest that only if we explore disparate elements of society can we ever hope to understand our society as a whole. This is Paul Edwards saying, good night. <laughs>